0: Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, Health, Lifestyle.
1: You see anybody protesting seatbelts today? Lord Balfour in 1980 stood up in Parliament right across the street over here, okay, and basically told everybody that seatbelts were an affront against their personal liberty. I mean, you know, let's get real here. All right, this takes a generational shift. And we've done it, and we'll do it with sugar. We're about, I would say, 10 years into the 30-year cycle.
0: Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Do we eat too much sugar? This is a question I pose myself even as I trick myself into thinking that because I eat so well the majority of the time, it makes up for my sweet tooth. But actually, when I review my eating habits, I always choose dessert I tend to snack a lot during the day, particularly if I'm working from home, and I eat way too much healthy chocolate. And perhaps after hearing Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of California, talk on the subject today, you might be inclined to review your sugar intake yourself. Dr. Lustig has become a leading public health authority on the impact sugar has on fueling diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome epidemics, and on addressing changes in the food environment to reverse these chronic conditions. Today, we talk about why excess sugar is just so bad for our health, what the benefits of cutting our sugar intake could be, why there is nothing wrong with fruit, and the differences between sugars the blood test we should all be ordering, and of course, why a calorie is not necessarily a calorie. Dr. Lustig also reveals some incredibly exciting research that he and friend of the podcast, Dr. Rachel Gao, have collaborated on where they've re-engineered ultra-processed food to be metabolically healthy. Could this be the answer to a public health crisis? Only time will tell, and I'd love to your thoughts on the subject as well. Remember, you can watch this podcast on YouTube. Just go to Doctors Kitchen on the YouTube, and you can download the Doctors Kitchen app for free from the App Store. Plus, you can subscribe to the Eat listen read newsletter we also have seasonal Sundays, which you get bundled in on a sunday which teaches you about a seasonal ingredient how to cook it the origins of it the history of it and the flavor profile as well as the potential benefits of that ingredient too for now onto my podcast with dr robert lustig Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Robert, fantastic to have you here. We're going to get right into this. What are some of the signs, if people are listening or watching this now, that people can be aware of that can signal that they're eating too much sugar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, first of all, that's everyone. <laughs> uh, in fact, we're supposed
1: to consume six to nine teaspoons of added sugar maximum. Obviously lower is better. Our current median consumption is actually 17 and a half in the United States. It's about 15 here in the UK. So pretty much everybody is consuming too much sugar and it's not because they're spooning you know uh, one lump or two you know into their coffee or tea it's because of the consumption of ultra processed foods now obviously, what what are the symptoms is what you're asking well first of all craving mm. you know anybody who says oh i have a horrible sweet tooth that's sugar addiction until proven otherwise and people don't understand that people think well sugar's just empty calories no in fact sugar activates the reward center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, and everything that activates the reward center in the extreme is addictive. So we have chemical addictions, cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar. We have behavioral addictions, shopping, gambling, internet gaming, social media, pornography. There's an aholic after every one of those chocoholic, shopaholic, sexaholic, alcoholic, et cetera. The fact of the matter is sugar activates the nucleus accumbens and it activates dopamine. Therefore, in the extreme, it is addictive. Now, is it addictive in everyone? Is alcohol addictive in everyone? No. 40% of Americans are teetotalers, never touch the stuff. 40% are social drinkers, can pick it up, put it down, no problem. I'm in that group. 10% are binge drinkers, and 10% are chronic alcoholics. Now, how do you know which one you are? Well, about the same for how do you know whether you're a sugar addict or not? What I can say is that people who are sugar addicted tend to be irritable, tend to be fatigued, tend to be uh, a little bit, shall we say, um, impulsive, a little bit angry, a little bit ADD, if you will. Uh, And of course, the main way is they tend to be very tired and they gain weight. And when they gain weight, they tend to gain weight in their liver and, of course, in their visceral fat. So their waist size will go up. So those are the kind of symptomatology uh, uh, profile, if you will. In children... You know, we see um, irritability and uh, um, difficulty concentrating. In middle schoolers, uh, sugar consumption has been associated with violent behaviors. In uh, Boston middle schoolers, uh, certainly it's been associated with, um, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 depression
0: and uh, uh, other, you know, uh, psychiatric symptoms as well. Mm -hmm. I want to... Talk about addiction in a bit more detail here because I'm of the opinion that you can be a a holic of all these different um, uh, substances or behaviours. The traditional description of addiction is that you have withdrawal effects. We definitely see that with sugar. There are people on the other side that have a differing opinion that sugar is not addictive. What are those... Those um, uh, opinions and what are what are your rebuttals to yeah. to some of those? So there is a group here in the UK, UK and in Europe called
1: Neurofast, uh-huh. and they believe that in fact the problem is not food addiction; the problem is eating addiction. Well, if that's the case, then you know there's no specific food that is addictive. Well, what that does is that gives the industry carte blanche to basically put anything they want in. Um, When you uh, look at, you know, what they say, first of all, they give alcohol a pass, and then they give caffeine a pass. And well, you know, alcohol, caffeine, I mean, like, sugar is not addictive, but alcohol and caffeine are, but you're giving them a pass. Like, how does that work? They also say sugar is energy and it's necessary for life. Garbage. Where does that come from? Now, it is true that glucose is energy. It is true that your liver can metabolize glucose for energy and so can your brain and so can every other organ in your body. That's true. But the question is, do your organs need glucose? And the answer is they need it, they, but you don't have to consume it to get it because your body will make it. It will make it out of protein or fat, a process called gluconeogenesis. So yes, you need glucose, but you don't need to eat glucose. Fructose the sweet molecule in sugar. There is no biochemical reaction in the body that requires it. It is completely vestigial to all animal life on this planet. And it is a mitochondrial toxin. It inhibits three enzymes that are necessary for mitochondria to work properly. It inhibits AMP kinase, the fuel gauge on the liver cell. It inhibits ACADL, which is one of the enzymes that helps chop up the... Uh, 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 fatty acids into two carbon fragments so that they can be oxidized, and also uh, uh, the byproduct of fructose uh, metabolism, uric acid, inhibits carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is necessary to regenerate carnitine, which is the shuttle mechanism to get the fatty acids into the mitochondria for oxidation in the first place. In other words, fructose is a chronic dose-dependent mitochondrial toxin. So the fact that it has four calories per gram is kind of irrelevant. In the same way that alcohol has seven calories per gram and is kind of irrelevant. There's no dietitian on the planet who would call alcohol food. Well, there should be no dietitian on the planet that calls sugar food because it's not necessary. It is not a nutrient. Just because it's energy doesn't make it a nutrient. In fact, sugar is not food. The definition of food. What is the definition of food? Substrate that contributes either to growth or burning of an organism. Well, I've just shown you that sugar actually inhibits burning because it inhibits mitochondrial ATP generation. How about growth? My colleague, Dr. Afrat Monsenigo Ornan at Hebrew University Jerusalem, head of the Department of Nutrition, has shown that sugar actually impairs linear growth. It impairs cortical growth. It impairs trabecular growth. It hijacks growth. It promotes cancer growth through fermentation, through the Warburg effect, but it in fact actually inhibits growth. So if a substrate actually inhibits burning and inhibits growth, is it a food? In fact, sugar is not a food. Sugar is a food additive. That's what sugar is. And we have plenty of data to support food additive addiction. Mm -hmm. So this is where the argument becomes actually not just semantic. Food versus eating addiction. Ultimately, what we're talking about is food additive addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I'm trying to... You know, promote and get across to uh, both the public and to NeuroFast because you know they got to get with the friggin' program.
0: <laughs> and with the uh, just on that on that point around uh, food addiction, I think. It also comes down to how socially acceptable some of these items are. You know, if you take the glib the example of smoking, it was very socially acceptable 60, 70 years ago. And it took decades for it to become socially unacceptable. And Absolutely. I think we're still at the early stages when it comes to, to sugar the, right. as an additive. I couldn't agree with you more, Rupi. I mean, f- uh, smoking went from fashion to filthy
1: habit yeah. in 30 years. Mm. Okay. Now, how did that happen? and why did it take 30 years and the answer is we taught the children the children grew up and they voted <laughs> and the naysayers are all dead okay this is a generational shift and unfortunately requires a generation to be able to see it in the fact we have had 4 Count them, four cultural tectonic shifts, both in the U.S. and U.K., over the last 30 years. And here they are. Number one, bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Number two, smoking in public places. Number three, drunk driving. Number four, condoms and bathrooms. Each of those was basically third rail of politics 30 years ago. If a legislator had stood up in a state house or Congress or Parliament or the Duma or anywhere else in the world and promoted any legislation about any one of those four things, they'd have gotten left right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Today, they're all facts of life. No one's belly aching about any of those. Okay. Oh, we're bellyaching about new stuff, like COVID vaccines. I mean, it's not like we'll ever solve the, the, this issue. But those four, you know, they're, they're settled. There's no arguments about it. You see anybody protesting seatbelts today? Lord Balfour in 1980, stood up in Parliament right across the street over here, okay, and basically told everybody that seatbelts were an affront against their personal liberty. I mean, you know, let's get real here, all right? This takes uh, a generational shift, and we've done it, and we'll do it with sugar. We're about, I would say, 10 years into the 30-year cycle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see. I, and, and it does feel like it's quite early in this uh, in this journey of changing perceptions socially around sugar. And I guess, you know, one of the other things I think is quite important to distinguish is uh, the different types of sugars that we have in our food supply. We mentioned ultra processed foods, but maybe we could use the example of uh, a whole food that contains natural sugars like fructose, um, like an apple, let's say, uh, and uh, a juice, which is somewhere along that processing. And then something where you have an apple-like substance added to something that's wrapped and you'll find in a, in a candy bar or whatever. And walk us through sort of what the the body receives in those three right. silly examples. So, you know, people always say to me, you
1: know, Dr. Lessig, you are so, so full of crap. Because okay? what you're basically telling us is don't eat fruit. And I never said that. In fact... Eat all the fruit you want, as long as it's fruit, okay? So what's the difference between fruit and fruit juice, okay? Big difference, and the answer is the fiber. Now, people think fiber is what you throw in the garbage after you've juiced the fruit. In fact, the fiber is the reason to consume the fruit in the first place. The juice is nature's way of getting you to eat your fiber. So, like, why is fiber important? So, Fiber is important for six different reasons. The first is it gives you a feeling of fullness. So it tells your brain you've eaten something, which is necessary to help start the mechanisms of satiety. It doesn't induce satiety, but it helps, you know, sort of mitigate and modulate the amount you eat. The second thing it does, the soluble and insoluble fiber within the fruit and you need both. Soluble fiber is like pectins or inulin, like what holds jelly together. Insoluble fiber is cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery, or cardboard for that matter. When you consume the whole fruit, you're getting both. And what happens is that the insoluble fiber sets up a lattice work, a fishnet, if you will, on the inside of your intestine. And the soluble fiber are globular. They plug the holes in the fishnet like kelp would. And together, they form an impenetrable secondary barrier that prevents absorption of glucose, fructose, sucrose, simple starches from getting from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. So you are delaying the absorption. You are delaying the glycemic response. Therefore, you are delaying the insulinemic response and you're attenuating it. And it's all about keeping that insulin down because insulin's the bad guy in this story. It's the thing that both drives weight gain and chronic metabolic disease. Anything you can do to keep your insulin down is good. And fiber is the best way to keep your insulin down. So when you're consuming the fruit, you're getting that second effect of the soluble and insoluble fiber, mitigating the glucose and insulin rise. Well, if you're not absorbing it early, it goes further down the intestine where the microbiome will chew it up for its purposes. So you are feeding the gut. And it turns out that that gut will take that that, that fiber, and will turn it into short-chain fatty acids, which are shown to be anti-inflammatory, anti-Alzheimer's. And lastly, the fiber will act like little scrubbies on the inside of your colon, preventing colon cancer. So six benefits to consuming the fruit as a whole fruit, but not because of the glucose, not because of the fructose, but rather because of the fiber. So eat the fruit, don't drink the juice. Mm-hmm. Now, then we get to soda, <laughs> or you know, or worse. Yeah. And now, then you've got a whole nother, you know, uh, uh, you know, level of uh, toxicity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because with, with the juice, you're getting some, let's say, uh, polyphenols that you have in apple with the fiber mitigated, so you can make an argument that there is some benefit, although it still will spike your blood sugar.
1: So if you juice a fruit, you will still have soluble fiber. The soluble fiber, the globular soluble fiber will still be there. And, it, and that does have some metabolic benefit. It will still generate short-chain fatty acids, okay? It still has a, a, a benefit. But of the six benefits that I just described, you will only get two of them. So you're, you're shortchanging yourself when you do that. So I am not for juicing. I know that the rest of the world thinks, you know, magic
0: bullets are magic. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) And does that go uh, hand in hand with smoothies or is that further up the Same thing. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to sugar sweetened beverages Uh or sodas uh, because this is a a main line to the liver, I guess. Yeah. Uh, So talk us through what happens when you have a, a high fructose, uh, corn syrup, sweetened sugar uh, right. beverage, or? Um, well, sir, first of all, uh,
1: sucrose, table sugar, cane sugar, beet sugar, the stuff you put in your coffee, is what you have in your UK Coca Cola. High fructose corn syrup is what we have in our US Coca Cola. Does it matter? Not a bit. They are exactly the same. Now, I mean, technically, they're not the same. Um, uh, Sucrose is one glucose, one fructose, with an O-glycosidic linkage linking the two. So it's a disaccharide. High fructose corn syrup is one glucose, one fructose, not bound together with that O-glycosidic linkage. So they are free. So they are monosaccharides. So people seem to think that that means something. No, it doesn't. It means nothing because the enzyme sucrase in your intestine will cleave that O-glycosidic linkage bond in about a nanosecond. You absorb the two molecules separately and they both go to the liver and do what we talked about. Basically, if you overwhelm your liver's capacity to metabolize fructose, the mitochondria who are being inhibited, right, as we just discussed, have no choice but to take the excess and turn it into liver fat. There's a process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making, and fructose drives that de novo lipogenesis, and then that fat is sitting in the liver and has one of two fates. It can either be exported out as a VLDL, very low-density lipoprotein, which you measure in your serum triglyceride and can serve as a substrate either for obesity or for cardiovascular disease. Or that fat molecule molecule won't make it out at all and will precipitate in the liver as liver triacylglycerol, as a uh, lipid droplet, And now you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which predisposes you to diabetes and every other chronic metabolic disease. So either way, it's a problem. If you overwhelm your mitochondria, you will make liver fat. And there are four things that overwhelm mitochondria. Fructose, alcohol, trans fats, and branch chain amino acids, mm-hmm. leucine, isoleucine, valine. Mm-hmm. They are metabolized the same way. And because of that, when they de- are deamidated, they become branched-chain organic acids. They overwhelm the mitochondria, and the mitochondria has no choice but to turn those into fat as well. This is work of Christopher Newgard at Duke. So it's not that I'm fructocentric. It's that I'm hepatocentric. Mm-hmm. The liver where the action is. Yeah. And anything that overloads your liver mitochondria becomes a toxin, Mm.
0: even things that we call food. Mm. Let's give listeners and viewers some insight into why the liver is uh, one of your focal points, because I don't think many people grasp just how prominent and prevalent NAFLD is in the States and also burgeoning in the UK particularly right. in a younger cohort.
1: Yes, uh, th- I mean this is a disease that was never diagnosed before 1980. So prior to 1980 if you saw fat in the liver on either an ultrasound or electron microscopy of the uh, you know of a liver biopsy, okay, that was an alcoholic. Mm. Okay, the only place you saw fatty liver was an alcoholic. Okay? Well, today, okay, 20% of five-year-olds have fatty liver. 20%? 20% of five-year-olds. Wow. Not obese five-year-olds, five-year-olds. All right? 45% of the adult American population has fatty liver disease. This is a disease that had never existed before 1980, and now 45% of America has it. You want to talk about pandemics? This is the friggin' pandemic, mm-hmm. and no one is talking about it. Now, why does it matter? the answer is because that fat is making the liver not do its job. That fat is generating a phenomenon called insulin resistance. It is preventing the ability of the liver to respond to the insulin signal. Now, the pancreas releases insulin in response to the glucose level. The insulin drains from the pancreas. Now, normally when a gland releases a hormone, it goes into the systemic circulation. And the volume of distribution of the systemic circulation is six liters. So a little insulin will get diluted throughout the body if it went into the systemic circulation. But it doesn't. It goes straight to the liver through the portal vein. And the volume of distribution of the portal vein is about 250 milliliters, not six liters. So a little insulin drives a very high insulin concentration in that portal vein. So when your liver is not working right, your pancreas has to make more insulin to make the liver do its job. Well, that's going to raise insulin levels at the level of the liver in order to get that liver to do its job. And that's going to end up raising insulin levels throughout the body. This generates hyperinsulinemia, this generates fat deposition, this generates chronic metabolic disease at the level of coronary arteries in terms of coronary vascular smooth muscle proliferation. It's going to generate insulin resistance at the level of the brain, starting the process of Alzheimer's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the liver, is the nidus for chronic metabolic disease. When the liver gets sick, all of the organs downstream of the liver get sick as well. So the liver is a primary target, both for the disease process and also for therapeutics.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of biomarkers for uh, insulin resistance, uh, obviously type two diabetes we use, things like HbA1c, these are things that are quite further along and downstream in terms of when we see the red flags. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, every th- one of the things you just mentioned, Rupi, the horse is already out of the barn. Yeah. Those are late, late markers. Mm-hmm. So the question is, well, what are the early markers? I mean, how can you you know, catch this nip it in the bud? Mm-hmm. And the answer is the best test is a fasting insulin level. And I am here in the UK in part to get the NHS to get their friggin' act together, okay, and start drawing fasting insulins. Now, this is not a slam dunk. And the reason it's not a slam dunk is because the American Diabetes Association and also Diabetes UK, I should add, do not believe in this, okay? So why is it that the ADA says one thing and I say the exact opposite because hmm. I'm right and they're wrong. That's why. <laughs> All right, now, now let me explain why that's true. The ADA says don't draw fasting insulin for two reasons. And both of them are specious. Both of them are incorrect. The first, they say fasting insulin levels are not, the, the assay is not standardized across platforms. That is true. I don't argue that. That is absolutely true. Radioimmunoassay, ELISA, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, MRS, you know, the different ways to measure insulin. Not standardized. I agree with that. Turns out there is another species that is picked up in the insulin assay. It's called proinsulin. So, you're from your medical schooling, you know that your pancreas makes a uh, peptide called proinsulin, and then an enzyme called Prohormone convertase 1 cleaves a piece of peptide out of that proinsulin called C peptide, and then you make the mature insulin molecule, and then the mature insulin molecule gets secreted in a vesicle from the pancreas. Proinsulin only has 5% of the activity of the mature insulin molecule. It's a prohormone, it's not really an active hormone. Well, when your pancreas is under duress, When you have a high glucose level, and you got to get it down, and you're significantly insulin resistant, your pancreas can't wait, okay? And so it's not going to wait for that PC1 to cleave out that C-peptide. It's going to release the whole friggin' molecule. And so you will end up with hyperproinsulinemia. This was actually work by Dr. John S. Yudkin, not John Yudkin. The famous British nutritionist, physiologist of the nineteen seventies, the one who f- argued with Ansel Keyes. This is his cousin, John Essy. Oh, his actually cousin? Oh, right. Yeah, okay, cousin, yeah, yeah. A yeah. wonderful guy. I've met him several times. He's he's a he's a uh, he, he's a major force in the field, and uh, uh, my, I tip my hat to him. Okay, but hyperproinsulinemia. Well, turns out the insulin assay will often pick up both, so the American Diabetes Association says, well, don't draw it. I mean, you're basically measuring two species at once. That's true. Who cares? It's high. That's what matters. (laughs) All right. And And if you got treatment, it would go down and you could monitor that. So I think that's a specious argument. I just think the ADA is just off base. Second reason they say don't draw it. They say fasting insulin levels do not correlate with obesity. That is also true. It correlates with metabolic health. Okay. And there are plenty of <laughs> obese people who are metabolically healthy. Yeah. And there are plenty of thin people who are metabolically ill. Mm. That's right. It doesn't correlate with obesity. It correlates with metabolic health. That's exactly the reason to draw it. Mm. So the reason they say not to draw it is actually the reason to draw it. So the ADA... You know, you got your head up, you know, you, you know where, and um, I'll debate you any moment you would like, okay? In any forum you choose, and I'm going to win.
0: Is there a cost consideration with fasting insulin at all, or is, there, is that a mute point? $14.50 wow. in America. Wow, okay. And if it's that in America, it's probably going to be cheaper over here. Probably. Yeah. Wow, Okay. Are there other markers that we can be looking at in the interim yeah. whilst we don't have fasting insulin as the standard across the NHS?
1: Right. So there are some other uh, uh, metabolites that, uh, and interim that are valuable. Uric acid is very valuable. Now, the problem with uric acid is the normal range. So uric acid, as, you, as I said, is a byproduct of fructose metabolism. You know, so it f- goes from fructose 1-phosphate. Okay, you know, uh, uh, when, when, the, when fructose gets uh, phosphorylated to fructose 1-phosphate, ATP goes to ADP, then ADP goes to AMP, which goes to IMP, finally, to uric acid. So uric acid will go up. Now, normally we think of uric acid as being associated with purines, with meat. It's also associated with sugar, both. Right. So it's a proxy for sugar consumption. And uric acid levels should be less than 5.5. But if you look at the lab slip, it'll tell you that the upper limit of normal is 7. Now, why is that? Why is 5.5 the, my upper limit and the lab slip's upper limit is 7? The answer is because the entire curve has shifted to the right over the last 40 years because everyone has metabolic syndrome because 93% of Americans are metabolically unfit. That's why, all right? And so basically, you know, how do you determine a normal range? You take 10,000 specimens from people who say they're healthy, you know, you figure out the mean and two standard deviations and you draw the line, all right? Well, if everyone's sick, you know, the whole curve has shifted to the right. So 5.5 is actually the upper limit of normal for uric acid. And that's a relatively earlier marker The second one is ALT, alanine aminotransferase. So this is a marker for liver fat. Again, same issue. What's the normal range? Normal range is up to 25. Now, on the lab slip, normal range is up to 40. Same issue. Over the last 40 years, it has moved from 25 to 40. When I started medical school in 1976, the upper limit was 25. It's now 40 because everyone's got fatty liver. So these are two markers that are valuable and cheap and in a standard chem panel that you can use, but you have to be able to interpret them properly. And the first thing you have to do is get rid of the highs and the lows. I don't know about here with the NHS, but in America, that high-low, you know, the H and the L, you know, in that column, Mm. that's worth 10 bucks. Mm. That's an interpretation. Okay, yeah. They get to charge more for
0: that. Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, wow. I yeah, that. tell me about <laughs> it.
1: Yeah, pull my brains out. <laughs> but this is the way it is. Wow. Right? Wow! So um, those are uh, valuable. Another thing that's valuable is the triglyceride to HDL ratio. That's a marker for insulin resistance. All right? And, you know, by the time you're waiting for fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C, horse is out of barn.
0: Yeah, yeah. In terms of um, HbA1c, that's specifically looking at glycated hemoglobin with glucose. That is particularly
1: looking at glycated hemoglobin at position one with glucose. Now, not the whole hemoglobin molecule, just position one, the lysine at position one. If you want to do a glycohemoglobin, then you're getting the whole thing, but virtually everyone does A1c now. The point is that fructose also fructates hemoglobin, but it doesn't do it at position one. It does it at position 66 and 110, and we don't have a setup for measuring that properly.
0: Huh. That's a research tool. Ah, gotcha. And so do you think there's ever a point in the future where we could get some sight over that, and would that be useful, particularly as fructose is in our food supply?
1: That's a really good question, and I can't answer that. Um, the Japanese have done that in a, in a research setting and shown that it occurs. Whether or not it will end up having clinical relevance and help us in any
0: meaningful fashion, I would have to see data. Mm. And, uh, we're still waiting for that. Mm. Give us an insight into some of the uh, foods that might have hidden sources of sugar in. Because I'm <laughs> always asked about, okay, which foods should I avoid? And there's the obvious ones, but there's perhaps some less obvious choices that people aren't as aware of when it comes to sugar? It's everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's just everywhere.
1: Um, you know, there's the obvious, the, you know, the sugar sweetened beverages, that's 37%. There's the candy cakes, ice cream, that's 16%. That leaves 49% of your, uh, sugar, uh, 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 consumption in things you didn't know had it. Yogurt, um, breakfast cereal is a huge one. Um, you know, um, salty snacks, uh, peanuts, uh, you know, uh, barbecue potato chips, uh, you know. And the list goes on mm. and on and on and on. Mm. I mean, Chinese chicken salad <laughs> is dessert. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. That, that's the way you have to think about it. If a sugar is w- any one of the first three ingredients, that is dessert. Yeah. And that's how you have to think about it.
0: in your clinical experience um i remember hearing you talk about how you show parents to how you practically remove sugar from their diets but also their kids diets as well i wonder uh, if you could perhaps give us some anecdotes of what those children and adults would experience when they removed sugar after let's say 30 days right so
1: in in 2010 to 2014 we performed a study that we've now published five papers on uh, where we took obese kids with metabolic syndrome from our own clinic at UCSF. So Latino and African American, all high sugar consumers, all with metabolic syndrome, you know, obesity, plus at least one comorbidity. We figured out what they were eating at home on their home diet. We studied them on their home diet. And then for the next nine days, we catered their meals, no added sugar. We took the percent calories of added sugar from 28% down to 10%. We gave them fruit. That was their only source of sucrose, was fruit. Everything else, we wiped out the added sugar in the food. Now, if you do that, if you go from 28 to 10%, you're removing 350 to 400 calories a day out of the kid's diet. And if you do that for 10 days, the kid might lose weight. We didn't want them to lose weight. We actually we want them to stay the same weight or even gain weight because we knew the critics would say, well, of course, the kid got better. Kid lost weight. Yeah. You know, so what? We didn't want them to lose weight. We needed them to stay the same or gain. So we had to replace the 350, 400 calories a day of sugar that we had taken out with something that was equi-caloric. We gave them extra starch. So in the vernacular, we took the pastries out, we put the bagels in, we took the sweetened yogurt out, we put the baked potato chips in, we took the chicken teriyaki out, we put the turkey hot dogs in. So we didn't give them good food, we gave them crappy food, we gave them processed food, we gave them food from local supermarket, Safeway, okay? Food you can buy, but, you know, not necessarily the food the kid would normally choose directly. But the parents were okay with it because it was, you know, Safeway food. They could get it themselves if they needed to. But we've supplied it. And we gave them a scale. And every day we'd call them up. What you weigh? And if they were losing weight, eat more, you know, in order to maintain their weight stability over the course of the 10 days. And then we studied them again 10 days later in their fructose restricted state. Every aspect of their metabolic health improved with no change in calories and no change in weight. 22% reduction in liver fat, 46% reduction in the conversion of sugar to fat in the liver, 49% reduction in triglyceride levels, 7% reduction in visceral fat, and most importantly, their pancreas started working right. Their pancreatic secretion and their insulin sensitivity all improved. In other words, we reversed their metabolic syndrome with no change in calories, no change in weight, showing this was not about the quantity of the food. It was about the quality of the food. And that sugar was indeed a direct chronic dose-dependent
0: mitochondrial toxin. And that should have been... Perhaps not the nail in the coffin for the calories in, calories out argument, but certainly, you know, enough evidence for us to change our thinking at an industry level around calories in, calories out. Well, the food industry does not want to change.
1: <laughs> yeah, The food industry, you know, the energy balance model, the calories in, calories out model, that's how they got here. That's their gravy train because they say, well, you know, you get to choose what calories you want, and everyone has discretionary calories, and if you wanna spend them on sugar, you know, you should be allowed to. So they subscribe to the energy balance model because it's good for them. Now, just so happens there are several other models. One is called the carbohydrate insulin model, that is the refined carbohydrate and sugar because of the insulin rise. And I thus far have subscribed to that. This, of course, has also been promulgated by my colleague at Boston Children's, Dr. David Ludwig. I'm Lustig. He's Ludwig. Someday we're going to open a law firm. (laughs) Uh, Turns out there's a third model called the redox model, which has to do with oxidation, reduction, abnormalities, and reactive oxygen species that ultimately uh leads to false metabolic signaling within cells and leads to proton leak, which leads to mitochondrial dysfunction, which is related to the two models, but different. And then finally, most recently, we've developed the obesogen model. Specific chemicals in the environment, like bisphenol A and phthalates and you know, uh, PFAS, you know, uh, 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 Polyfluorinated, alkylated yeah. substances like Teflon, um, that uh, also, you know, generate obesity as well. Mm-hmm. And it turns out what they all have in common, all the models, all four models, is reactive oxygen species, mm-hmm. oxidative stress. Oxidative stress by sending false signals to cells, tell the cells to do, basically metabolize differently, because the cell thinks there's a proton leak. And so it thinks it needs to shut down its mitochondria. And so we're trying to unify the various hypotheses and try to get rid of the calorie. The calorie needs to die.
0: Yeah. My
1: job is to kill the calorie because the calorie is what the food industry hides behind.
0: Yeah. 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 And I, I guess uh, in addition to that, and I've, I know you've touched on this in the past, it's um. What about stress? Stress yeah. and and what sugar about stress? Fat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so stress does several
1: things. Number one, it causes insulin resistance on its own. Cortisol is a primary driver of insulin resistance. Cortisol is also a primary driver of uh, amygdala activity, and one of the ways to try to mitigate increased amygdala activity is with food, but higher density. Food So it increases appetite, right, and so um, stress basically makes everything worse, in addition, stress puts your prefrontal cortex to sleep, puts it into suspended animation, so any cognitive control that you might have had over your diet goes out the window as soon as you are chronically stressed, and so your amygdala just goes hog wild and you know says. Feed me in order to feel good so that you can get a reward uh, uh, system generation at the level of the nucleus accumbens. So my colleague in uh, Paris and I, uh, his name is Dr. Philippe Gossier. He's a robotics professor and a neuroscientist, an interesting portfolio. Um, He and I have been working for the past three years on a computational model of the limbic system. And basically it all comes down to the amygdala, the fear center. And there are a lot of things that alter that amygdala. And cortisol, obviously, you know, it's ground zero for what's going on. And so when your amygdala is under attack, okay, all hell breaks loose. And basically, that's what's happened to our society in the last 50 years.
0: Yeah. I mean, as a general practitioner and even someone working in A&E, it's definitely something that I specifically ask and look for uh whenever somebody is complaining of a weight related issue uh, or a metabolically uh metabolical um issue I think that's uh, a, an important consideration absolutely
1: yeah if if you're stressed you can't fix it yeah you yeah gotta, you gotta unstress So the question of course is how do you do that yeah, yeah <laughs> and there's the problem hey? and that and and that is where Individual, you know, personalized medicine really comes in, Absolutely. is because. Everyone's got a different reason for their stress.
0: Yeah, and
1: it, it, there's no there's no one size fits all for that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Talk, talking of collaborators, um, you've you've collaborated with a, a colleague of mine, Rachel Gao, yes, on yes. uh, uh, ultra processed food, the, yes. the, the metabolic matrix. I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit more about uh, ultra processed foods and the impact on sure. uh, metabolic health.
1: So, as I said, ultra processed food is not food uh-huh. for the reasons that we've just discussed. Um, there is a company in the Middle East, the Nestle of the Middle East, if you will. Uh, it's called KDD, Kuwaiti Danish Dairy Company. Uh, and they make all sorts of crap. <laughs> they make flavored yogurts. They make uh, frozen you know, ice cream. They make uh, uh, flavored milks. They make confectionery, biscuits, tomato sauces. Okay. The CEO and founder of KDD is a Kuwaiti national born in the UK who fed Kuwait through the first Gulf War. And Queen Elizabeth knighted him. So he is Sir Mohammed. So, how many Sir Muhammad's do you know? Not many. <laughs> <laughs> he is a wonderful guy. Okay. Okay. An absolute, he is a prince. The guy is an absolute, you know, um, a stand up guy. I-, I love him. Okay. But Sir Muhammad, eating his own food, weighed 350 pounds and had type 2 diabetes and back pain at age 48. And so he went to his UK doctors, and his UK doctors gave him insulin and oral hypoglycemics, and he got worse, and he felt awful. And so he said, oh, I've got to figure out what to do. So he started going on the internet and doing his own you know, research, and he found Jason Fung and me. Jason is an adult nephrologist in Toronto who has seen enough diabetic nephropathy in his day and has you know, glommed on to intermittent fasting as a primary you know, therapeutic tool. Fair enough. And found me. And anyway, he started doing what we said, and he lost 100 pounds. His type 2 diabetes went away. His back pain resolved, and he thinks we hung the moon. Okay, that's all good. And then he has his aha moment, his moment of epiphany. Wait a second. If I did this to myself, eat my own crap, what am I doing to the rest of the East? And so he talked with his sister, who was the chief financial officer, and she's, And they agreed. since they're privately held, they don't have Wall Street quarterly reports, they don't have shareholders to placate, that they would take the long view and they wanted to turn their company around and make it metabolically healthy. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you do that? So they called me and they said, we would like to engage you in a long-term project to help us develop the method for being able to make processed food healthy now initially when i heard that i thought to myself well, that's a fool's <laughs> <friend>. <laughs> <I ain't> gonna- <laughs> but you know the more i thought about it i said you know there are certain principles that we could certainly make things better and so we i convened a scientific advisory team dr Gao, fatty acid expert um uh, Dr. Tim Harlan, uh, who's head of culinary medicine at George Washington yeah, University. Well. Yeah. Wonderful guy. Love him. Mm. Okay. Best dressed doctor. Yeah, in he is.
0: Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love
1: him. I, he's, he's like my pro. Yeah. Um, Wolfram Alderson, my uh, social media director, and has been in the food business for a long time. And Andreas Kornstadt uh, from Hamburg, who is a uh, computer data scientist, Stanford trained. And we uh, convened the five of us, and we. Developed a protocol, a set of tiers criteria. Uh, uh, KDD, uh, uh, you know, submitted all of their various ingredients for uh, chemical analysis by the company Eurofins. And basically, what we did was, over the course of uh, the three years of the uh, uh, of the project, we developed the roadmap for being able to take a company and take the item you know the 180 items the 180 skus in this company and turn them around to be metabolically healthy and to KDD's credit 10% of their portfolio has turned around that's
0: incredible yeah that's absolutely incredible yeah. that's like the in my mind that's almost like the pinnacle of your career everything that you've been doing and working up to this point is changing the giants that produce what is it, eighteen ninety percent of our foods? Indeed, and the point is that obviously, if KDD alone
1: does it, it you know goes nowhere. But you know that's why we told KDD at the beginning of the project that our goal was to publish this. This had to reach you know the general public, and so that it could be used as a template for other companies to be able to do the same thing. And that was you know inherent in our uh, in our uh, initial agreement. And so we published this in Frontiers in Nutrition back on March 30th. It's called the metabolic matrix reengineering ultra processed food to protect the liver, feed the gut and support the brain.
0: This is wonderful. I'm getting sort of like goosebumps because if you're creating the playbook for a company, the size, perhaps it's not as big as Nestle or... You well, know, it's not United as big. It's whatever. big enough. It's big enough to yeah. demonstrate to the bigger players that this is possible and this is the Feasible, direction travel. Scalable ha. and profitable. Absolutely, yeah. Because I, I always think, you know, these large companies uh, get a bad rap for good reason, but they were tasked with creating portable long shelf life, palatable foods and distribu- distributing them at a global scale. And they've done that fantastically at the expense of metabolic health, that's at the correct. expense of our, our treatment. Metabolic off. Health. health was the,
1: um, you know, the, 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 the trade trade-off. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's
0: so right. if you're demonstrating that you can do all those things plus metabolic health, that's phenomenal. That's right. really going to, have a massive uh, uh, impact on on health across across the world. And that's the goal. Brilliant. And how, I mean, it's probably gonna be very involved, but how did you manage to get 10% of their entire SKU to be metabolically healthy, was it the addition of? Oh no, we've gotten their whole skew to be metabolically the healthy. The whole just, skew. Well, they've oh, wow. just they've
1: just you know been able to initiate. I mean, they have to go slow. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, number one, you know, it, the, it means trade offs in terms of vendors. It means trade offs in terms of procedures. It means trade offs in terms of machinery. It means trade offs in terms of marketing and packaging. It, you know, this is not something that you just snap your fingers and all of a sudden it's done. Okay, it you know it has to be phased. And so they've been able to do this thus far with 10%. You know, the goal is for the whole line to ultimately change. And the most important thing, and this is kind of weird, but the most important thing was they didn't tell the public about it.
0: Interesting. So they because just made they the They told change, the public
1: exactly. about it. They say, Oh doesn't taste good. <laughs> yeah." only right? time you say something's healthy, ah, oh, it doesn't taste good. You yeah. Know, it's yeah. like an automatic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. When you don't tell the public,
0: they don't know the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a really good point. I mean Alicia Crumb, I believe, in Stanford University, she's done studies about the perception of healthy foods and people immediately make the assumption that it's not going to taste nice. That's right if it's got a healthy. Tom Robinson took the same hamburger and wrapped it in two different, you know, wrapped it in a
1: McDonald's wrapper, wrapped it in a brown paper wrapper, and automatically the McDonald the
0: one in the McDonald's wrapper tasted better. I mean, you know, this is, you know, you know, play play on your brain. Yeah, yeah. And was it with the addition of things like functional fibers to the original products, or was it a real sort of rewriting the we're
1: adding fibers to things that normally didn't have fiber we're Mm -hmm. adding um, uh, uh, fatty acids Mm. and omega-3s to things that didn't have omega-3s so there's a lot of additions there's a few subtractions we're getting rid of the emulsifiers Mm -hmm. we're getting rid of a lot of the artificial colors because they generate reactive oxygen species interesting and price it's a little bit more expensive what we learned was you can't get rid of all the sugar if you go straight to non-caloric sweeteners, it doesn't taste very good. Rupi, have you ever tasted a no-sugar chocolate bar?
0: Uh, I don't believe I have, although I may have tried. Oh, no, I did. I've tried a diabetic bar before. It wasn't very nice. Yeah, right. It wasn't very nice. <laughs> exactly right. It wasn't very nice.
1: You would never go back for a second one if you had uh, a choice, would so. you? No, That's no. That's right. Fact of the matter is, you need a little sugar to activate that nucleus accumbens, to make it rewarding. Mm. The question is, how much? So we had to walk the fine line between activation of the nucleus accumbens and not overloading the liver. One teaspoon per serving. One teaspoon. One teaspoon will get you the uh, nucleus accumbens effect without the liver effect. Okay, one teaspoon per serving. That's not enough for an ice cream. That's not enough for a flavored milk. What we learned was we could use a sugar extender beyond that, one that has metabolic benefits of its own. The one that we have chosen, the one we think is going to be the, the winner in this non-nutritive sweetener de, uh, you know, battle okay. is allulose. Allulose, okay. Allulose, and allulose has some very promising metabolic uh, health benefits, including lowering of LDL, raising of HDL, looks good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't see any, you know, toxicities at the moment. It's an epimer of fructose. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's metabolized appropriately as opposed to generating, you know, byproducts like aspartame, stuff like that, not good. Um, Problem right now is that allulose, number one, is 12 times as expensive as sugar. But it's coming down because demand is going up and there are new methods for production that will reduce uh, cost. And also, currently, the EFSA has said allulose is okay, but the Gulf Cooperation Council has not yet. Okay. So we're actually waiting to institute
0: those. Mm -hmm. So lots of work yet
1: to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah and it's allulose excreted uh kidney. by the liver uh, or oh, kidney sorry okay yeah yeah and there aren't any local effects that we know of allulose. Not that we know ah uh, interesting um bringing this full circle i guess to the uh non nutritive um the non nutritive um uh, assets of, of sugar have you come to the conclusion that it's not Sugar per se, but the excess of sugar that is causing issues. Yeah,
1: I mean basically we have a limited capacity to metabolize anything Paracelsus 1537, you know Nothing is without poison, you know, the dose determines the poison Indeed that is correct. I mean, you know in excess water is toxic in excess oxygen is toxic All right, but there's no abuse potential with sugar, yeah. there is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With alcohol, there is. <laughs> so when you're both toxic and addictive, you got a problem. Yeah. So we need to recognize that fact. Any substance that is both toxic and addictive and ubiquitous and has negative impact on society, we regulate. Tobacco, alcohol, opioids, etc. Okay for sugar we have nothing and you know public health uh, officials and politicians need to recognize this you know inconvenient truth in order to be able to make headway we have 1500 years of alcohol control policy every country in the world has an alcohol control policy we need sugar control policies
0: yeah I agree. Um, Look, we haven't scratched the surface when it comes to the genetic predispositions of laying down visceral fat across different backgrounds. Uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff I could ask you about the industry. We'll have to do this again at some point. I suppose so. (laughs) (laughs) But this has been a pleasure. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your... uh, your, your, the vigor by which you're, oh, no, you're bringing this. You. Yeah, I don't know any other way to be. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Uh, very. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the Doctor's website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time.